Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in your Bibles this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 will continue on where we began last week in understanding wisdom that Solomon has for us, the Lord has for us. I guess I could call this wisdom for the wealthy. Wisdom for the wealthy. Now we're spiritually wealthy, but I guess per capita across the world, we still have the wealthiest society, the wealthiest country of any country in the world. Now, I know everyone in this room feels incredibly rich except for college students. <laughs> Not, right? Young marrieds, you struggle. Um, college students really struggle. High schoolers never struggle because especially the high school girls, you always know your dad's wallet is. Mine does. My high school gal does. And uh, I'll, oftentimes I feel more impoverished than her. But the, the, the college kids and the young marrieds, and I know sometimes when we get into the uh, sunset years of our lives that we don't feel uh, necessary uh, wealthy in a, in a material sense. Uh, because of the cost of prescriptions and doctor's office co-pays and, and, uh, and so forth. But generally speaking, in our country, we're a pretty affluent group of people when you consider what we have, right? Paul says that we're to be content with food and clothing and shelter, right? Amen. That's pretty simple. And to be honest, even if we're a college student or young married or a senior saint, we all have more than just those three things, don't we? Especially in our culture. So we are an affluent bunch. And really, what Solomon's saying here, here's some wisdom that we can live by and should live by as materially wealthy people, that if we live by this wisdom, we'll be able to maintain maintenance, if you will, our eternal purpose for living. That was really chapter six. We looked at those two examples of those two men. How did they get distracted? How did they allow life and wealth to distract them from living from eternal purpose? And now chapter seven is really here's some wisdom principles for God's people and how to maintenance quality life while we live with eternal purpose. And we began last week by, by reading Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verses one through 15. Uh, I'm not going to do that today, but we will highlight some truths as we go through these various verses in relationship to this section, which really transitions at chapter 7 and verse 15. We know the end of the section, the third major section, if you've been here with us before, of the book of Ecclesiastes, started with chapter 6 and ends with chapter 8 and verse 15. We know how we can look at verse 15, which concludes similar to the first two sections of the book, is kind of a closed line of hope for us to persevere through while we go through the tall weeds of wisdom application here. Right? But chapter 7, verses 1 to 15, 1 to 14 really talks about wisdom in relationship to our wealth. And when we get into chapter 15 to the end of the, end of the chapter here, we're going to really talk about wisdom in relationship to character man's character, not man's wealth. But we'll, we'll journey and venture into that section probably in the next week or two here. Right? But what did we learn last week? For those of us who are given so much as we maintenance living life on purpose, which is living life with eternal purpose, we realized last week that a good reputation will often outlive a wealthy man's lifestyle. Remember that? 
A good reputation will often outlive a wealthy man's lifestyle. Proverbs chapter 10, we highlighted, the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. We highlighted the life of Mary of Bethany as compared to the life of Judas. And the first part of verse one is true. It is very true. A good name is better than good ointment. And we learned number two, that it can be better to mourn than to feast. It can be better to mourn than to feast. The day of one's death, verse one says, is better than the, the day of one's birth. What is there to learn in the house of mourning? And we spent a good amount of time focusing on that timeless truth. C.T. Studd, hymn writer, author that many of you are familiar with, a missionary to China, wrote this hymn that many of us are familiar with. And I just want to read the content of this hymn as we transition to the next section of wisdom truth here in chapter seven. It's a familiar hymn called Only One Life. And it reads two little lines. I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish, selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only, what's, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I think that's wisdom that would teach us that life is indeed a vapor. It appears for a little time, as James 4 says, and passes away. And it also instructs that an appropriate consideration of breathing our last, remember going to the house of mourning, running right the house of feasting, a proper and appropriate healthy consideration of death even, from time to time should bring perspective and how we live intentionally and joyfully with eternal purpose, okay? So let's move on to verses three and four. This is where we will begin this morning where we kind of left off last week. Verses three and four teach us that there is work to be accomplished in sorrow. There's work to be accomplished in sorrow. Somewhat on the heels of the previous truth that we saw, this verse reads, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy, and the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Verse three lends to us or offers us a perspective, obviously, that we just discussed in verse two, that sorrow can bring its own happiness. James chapter one, verses two through four, if you'll cross-reference that next to these two verses in Ecclesiastes 11, there is a blessing for a believer when conflict or affliction comes to our lives. As a matter of fact, the same paradox is given to us there in our New Testament context where we're told to count it all joy when you what? Fall into various afflictions. And that's really what Solomon is saying here in an Old Testament wisdom, wisdom context. These blessings 
are not in the form of riches, but to be much more valued are the spiritual lessons we learn in joy while we endure through conflict. And really, what is the greatest spiritual joy that we learn in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? It's the joy of understanding how God's grace underpins perseverance regardless of the degree of our conflict. There's great joy there, isn't there? You might say at a funeral or at a time of sorrow, I know the Lord has a purpose for this. Or I know the Lord has a reason for this. Um, But you know what? I've heard a lot of people that don't know Jesus say the same thing. Even by common grace, man can ascend because they're made in the image of God to the reality of I know God has a purpose and they don't even know Jesus. How much do these wisdom truths and New Testament truths mean to us that really do know Jesus? We know that this is far deeper than just a mere guttural reality of joy and perseverance. We know that I can do literally all things, right? Through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul is going through and describing in Philippians 4 in verse 13, the few verses before that, he goes, I know how to live with everything, and I know how to live with what? Nothing. And remember his context in Acts 16. When he first comes to the Philippian church, right? What does he face? Imprisonment? Beating? He leaves Philippi and in Acts 17 goes to the church of Thessalonica and he even tells them, I came to you having been greatly afflicted in Philippi and now I understand your affliction because I've already gone through the same thing. I've almost lost my life for the cause of Christ. Right? Think about James who writes James chapter 1. Think about the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Think about what this man had experienced even as a blood relative of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a good portion of his life watching his son, the God-man, live a perfect life as an unsaved man himself. You folks that have been in the word long enough and you know church history long enough, you understand the degree of affliction that's being addressed here by James, by Paul, Solomon, okay, It's deep. And only that which is divine, only that which is supernatural, which is the grace of God, can underpin us to persevere with the right attitude through those difficulties, right? It's only a God thing. Verse four, it says, the mind of the wise is in the house of of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Wisdom always has something to learn and strives to avoid denial of hardship. Wisdom always has something to learn and strives to avoid the denial of hardship. Do we live in a culture that seeks to avoid unavoidable hardship? How does the world go about living in denial of unavoidable hardship? Pleasure seekers always try to drown out the pain in their lives 
One author said, the life lived in denial of the true nature of things, hoping to push reality to the margins by flooding the senses with sensation and drowning out quiet contemplation with noise. This is what the world does. This is what we have a tendency to do if we're not careful. So where does our heart love to live when life gets super noisy and even sorrowful? I wonder if you've ever even considered this. We look around and we're told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that the partying, intoxicating, concerting, substance abusing, all the noises that our world goes to to drown out their affliction. The text says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that these are the people that run from you because that's what you used to be. And now left here, you have a family. A family of God in Jesus Christ that's to do what? What do we do there? What, what, what joy, what does the wise man do in they, even in that type of conflict when the world runs away in denial from noise that's unavoidable? What does the believer do? Go with me there to 1 Peter 4. Hold your finger here in Ecclesiastes 7. And let's just look at some practical application. Where does the Christian who lives life with unavoidable conflict and difficulty go when they watch the world around them, maybe even friends around them that don't know Jesus, run to denial and various things that that calm their pain? You read on your own time what happens in verses 1 to 6 after we come to know Jesus as our Savior. Right? Not all, but most, those we used to run with and do the same things, move away from us because they're uncomfortable with our new life in Christ. We still love them. We still try to reach them and acquaint with them. But we have a new life in Christ. And what does verse 7 say? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sound in judgment, sober of spirit for the purpose of prayer. And it doesn't finish there. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So this group that we used to run with that's still living in denial of their unavoidable conflicts, we now have a new family to endure our afflictions with. We do so in prayer, loving one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. That phrase, in light of the immediate context, is immensely powerful. Covers a multitude of what sins? The sins of verses one through six. And in this new environment, this new family, where maybe even the consequences of our old life flow over into our new life, guess what? We're just in a room full of people that are still living out the consequences of their old life, only with each other by the grace of God. And in that environment, love, objective love, does cover a multitude of sins. We just do this together, right? Verse nine, we have new homes to be invited into. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And then we have spiritual gifts, both serving and speaking gifts. And and when we gather together for worship and for service, and we celebrate all these various ways, right? This morning in the month of September, how people were gifted. There's where we find and see and live the attitude of joy in perseverance. Wise people who are even in sorrow, They don't try to avoid the unavoidable conflict. This is how we do it together, even in a New Testament context. If we can put some practical hands and feet from the New Testament to some Old Testament wisdom here. Okay?
All right, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and let's consider verses 5 and 6 as we move along this morning. As a people of great means, we learn from verses 5 and 6 that seeking to find release from affliction with the senseless laughter of unwise people will never bring relief. The rebuke of a friend or person in authority in your life who loves you is better than seeking relief from affliction without learning and self-development. Verse 5 says this, It is better to listen to a rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, and this too is futility. Now apparently, again, I want to remind us of chapter 6 and verse 12. Remember we began there last week because we found out something there that's a bit of a clothesline. We attach all the wisdom truths of chapter 7 to. If you go back there with me and read that, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? Right. So apparently, people that are gifted with so many good things, material possessions, and various degrees of wealth, right? we needed to be told, okay, what is good for us. And these wisdom truths in chapter 7 are all attached to define for us what is good. And apparently, wealthy people struggle in these particular aspects of living out biblical wisdom. And one of those is simply here. We have a tendency to find release from affliction with senseless, senseless laughter of unwise people bringing relief. So what does that mean? Well, I think we need to be cautious here. I think we need to consider uh, together the value of the rebuke of a wise man because it does have value here. Now, the assumption here is Solomon's the wisest man that ever lived other than the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You know that story if you know your Bibles. Here's a guy that really apparently found it difficult, especially when he's walking away from the Lord, let alone walking with the Lord, finding someone that had a better idea than he did. Are you with me? If you're the wisest guy in the world, who does it better than you? Right? But he's even saying here, right? A wise person listens to the rebuke of another wise person. And especially in our stripe of Christianity, I think it would be really cautious here. Sometimes when we've been walking with the Lord a long time, we're very familiar with his word, and we're living governed by the spirit of God, and we've had a certain measure of success over decades. Sometimes of the rebuke of another wise man, and they're trying to speak into our lives. And I think we need to be careful of that. I need to be careful of that. Right? We're always, as wise people, layered, not only with knowledge, not only with Bible knowledge, not only with wealthy lifestyles, there is always something for these kinds of people to learn. And the Bible says what? Faithful are the wounds of friends, the same author. It's good for us to be able to speak into each other's lives in this regard. And I just want to uh, not have a shameless plug here for, but I think a biblical statement in relationship to how important it is for us to continue to build here a culture of studying the Bible together and trying to reach the lost together. The more you're across this building during Sunday school Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, studying God's word together, there's a healthy level of transparency that's 
brought naturally but supernaturally into your relationship with that other person, how easy is it to receive a rebuke from a wise friend who's studying the word of God with you, has walked through a lot of life's difficulties with you and a lot of life's joys? How easy it for the sit across to say, hey, you know what, Tim? I love you, you know that, I've been with you for years, we've been studying together for years, we've been praying together for years, and I saw this in your life, and it brought a little bit of a challenge to me, and I just wanted to talk to you about that real quick. How easy is it to receive a rebuke from a friend like that? It's a lot easier. I grew up in a disenfranchised, non-communicating, non-relational, primarily non-relational, Bible-believing, conservative Christianity where that kind of transparency wasn't even there. So when someone stepped into your life to call you out for something, they may not have even known your name. And yet they pointed out a vice. And how good did that come across, right? Think about that in relationship to Ephesians 6 even in your own home. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but what? Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That word nurture and that word admonition, they automatically imply deep and loving and patient relationship. If a father doesn't even have that with his children in his home in a Deuteronomy 6 kind of way, when that dad steps into the environment of his child's life and they bring a rebuke, how's that rebuke heard? Well, in that environment, you may even be saying something right because you haven't engendered that relationship with your child. You are actually provoking that child to wrath. You see, doing the right thing the wrong way is still wrong. Okay, A wise person embraces the rebuke of another wise person. Why? I'm assuming here by the biblical theology of all interdependent Bible communication among God's people, it's because it's easy to give, so it's easy to be heard. I wonder if even Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 17 is much more graciously done. If your brother offends you, you who were offended go to him. I wonder if that's even plays into this wisdom conversation here. I would cross-reference in the margin of your Bible since the context here from chapter 6 through 7, 14 is in direct address to talking to wealthy believers enriched believers with things which are good gifts from God, James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Why? Because James in that context is directly addressing wealthy Jewish people in that context. What does he have to say to those people? It's sobering. To wealthy Jewish people, he says, if you're afflicted, pray. Confess your faults to one another so that you might be what? Healed. Go back and look at the context of James chapter five. The direct address to wealthy religious people is right there at the beginning of the chapter and the practical application of that address flows out through the rest of the chapter. It's powerful. 
people who are spiritually and materially wealthy, they're typically not good at deep and necessary conversations with people that love the Lord and know that they love them and the Lord. But I think it's a good thing. And I think what's going on here at Grace is awesome. Just keep it going. Just keep it going. It's a lot more natural for me to step in the environment of my children and to offer a rebuke across the table when they know the relationship is so deep and so wide that what you say as a rebuke doesn't even come across to them as a rebuke. Are you with me? Amen. It's just a natural part of growing each other in Christ likeness. Same with us as spouses, right? The same thing can happen. It's an artwork. I know it's a spiritual artwork. These are wisdom truths to apply to that, but hopefully helpful nonetheless. Okay. Without a relationship with other believers, without a relationship with your spouse or with your child like this, right? When you come home, kids, and you bring your report card and you put your report card down at your dad's lap, right? In the old days, what happens? Hmm, put the specs on. I see you've got all A's and B's, except for this class. You got a C. And then it was like hee-haw of old gloom, despair, and agony on me, right? Because it was all over. You got a C, or you got a D. You got an F for the quarter. What? And all the attention got given to that, right? Huh. No relationship. How do we hear that? I know it sounds silly, but hey. How about getting that evaluation at work, believer? Everything's great, but. I remember teaching as adjunct faculty at the seminary that I graduated from for 15 years. And, and every year they would send out an evaluation to the students. And I would just love to get those evaluations back, right? Right? Because apparently, although I have 35 students, only three filled them out, and they were the three that thought the class was pointless, <laughs> right? So what happens, right? You have 32 people that apparently loved the class or didn't even care, right? And then you got three, and then what is it about our flesh that just loves to embrace criticism like that, right? We don't, but again, in a proper environment, where relationships are built through biblical communication, comparing New Testament with Old Testament wisdom literature, I think it's more well received. What's verses seven through nine teaching us here? Let's read those together. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Again, remember the clothesline of the first sentence of chapter six and verse 12. Remember all these wisdom principles being attached to that clothesline of knowing what's good for us. And remember the greater context of chapter six through 714, that the, the, the God of heaven is addressing wisdom principles to people who are wealthy. Apparently, wealthy people have a tendency to need this wisdom. And so what's this wisdom teaching us. It teaches us that we do have a tendency to use our resources to buy or to maneuver their way out of difficulty long before the Lord intends us to escape from it. 
you remember, folks? I hope the young kids continue to tune in here while I address those who lived life before GPSs on their phones. I remember as a young pastor taking a guest speaker back to the airport and we were late, okay? Now I didn't need a GPS to get to the airport, but when you hit traffic long before Dead Man's Curve going into Cleveland and you know that there's no way he's gonna get there to make his flight, you have to start thinking out of the box. Now what do I do? I just pull up my Waze app Right, And it could take me to relatively obscure little roads and some pretty skittish neighborhoods, right? All the way, but man, I'm gonna get there on time with my life, right? I don't have ways at that point, so what do you do, right? You get off at uh, maybe East 55th or Marginal Road, and what are you doing? You're gonna kind of dink and dunk knowing that generally the airport's west that way, right? So you're gonna keep your eyes on the setting sun and you're gonna kind of go through roads, and literally I did this. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have a map in my car. I'm gonna just follow the sun, right? Dead end after dead end after dead end after dead end. Into some really, really weird places. Nooks and crannies of our city I didn't even know exist and I haven't been back since, right? <laughs> but that's what happens. That's what we tried to do. Our motivation is to get to our goal. It's good, we'll do anything we can to avoid that traffic and avoid being late. But sometimes God wants you to be late. That's the point here. Sometimes dead ends are good for God's people to get to because there's a lot to be learned there. The principle is here that we'll get to at the end as we continue to go through these wisdom lines of truth is simply this. You control what you can control, but you can't control what you can't control. And when you get to a point when you realize you were controlling something you thought you were controlling and God was controlling something you never were controlling and then he takes the reins and says, you can't do anything about it, then the wise man does what? Okay. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean anymore on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and, and he'll direct your paths, Right? The easy way out of trouble is not always God's way out. For me in those moments when I come to a place where I'm trying to find an easy way out and I realize there's no easy way out, the first person I try to go to is the Lord, the second is word, but the third person I go to is someone that has the gift of faith. I believe it's a very real spiritual gift in the New Testament. This is someone that's just Super easy for them to, to say, you know, Pastor Tim, the Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Thankfully, God let me marry someone that had the gift of, gift of faith. And, and when I said I do, I had no idea she had it, right? Because she lives with a very, very conflicted man sometimes. There are so many things in a pastor's life and a husband's life and a dad's life that you folks know that you just need to control, and you try to help people out, you try to show them the way, and you try to get them to do, and you try to you know, pick them up when they fall or bring them down when they're too high, and all these things, and sometimes you just can't control what you can't control. And I look at her sweet, smiling face, and she says, God's got this, what's your problem? When I feel like God doesn't have anything in control at that moment, don't tell me that, but I know I need that, right? God's got this, relax. God's got this, relax. I was on the phone with sweet Sandy Brandt yesterday. I was on the way down to the football game in Columbus. I picked up the phone. Windshield time's a lot of prayer time for me. 
And, and I said, hey, I'm praying for you. How's Denny doing? And you know, she's the other person that I go to with the gift of faith in our church because this lady has been through trials that are completely inexplicable. Over decades of being a believer. And she's always, to me, the most settled, sweet, content soul. She says, Pastor, it's gonna be okay. God's got this. That's what she said. So I'm calling the minister to her and she's convicting me because on windshield time, I'm struggling with something I'm trying to control that I can't control. And here I have this lady who I was next to decades ago with her brain surgery, wondered if that was gonna take her life and it didn't. And now she's going through her husband with the near death thing. And they were supposed to get on an airplane Tuesday. And that flight may have taken his life, if not in the air when he got on the ground. That's how they said it was the, that was, it was the ugliest aortic valve they'd ever seen. <laughs> right? And she goes, look at all these things, Pastor Tim, that God just, right, God's got this. It's okay. It's all right. Thanks for praying for me, but, but God's got this. And wow. <laughs> so go to the Lord, go to his word, go to find someone that's got the gift of faith to help you through this. If you struggle uh, with being impatient or angry when you try to control things you can't control and you find out God's in control. As you work yourself through that, and apparently wealthy people struggle with that because we typically can take our technology, take our dollars, take our things, take our education, take our opportunities, and navigate our way out of most trouble and conflict. But sometimes there's some you just can't. And when God says, no, not this time, then a wise person has a lot to learn there, right? As we just trust the Lord. Right off here in the margin of your Bible, next to verses 7 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19, which I often encourage you to consider at those points and trust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to persevere and to do good things. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, instead of being anxious, instead of being angry, instead of worrying our way out of these things, trying to use our things to maneuver our way out of these things, know that God has provided a way out of that temptation. Maybe write down here 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, where we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that he will exalt you in due time. Cast your care upon him because he does care for you. There are some things he is just going to control while he's in control of it all. He's gonna leave it out of your control. But this is what you can control when things are out of your control and under his control. All these texts in the New Testament. Sometimes we'll even use anger to get our way, right? But what does Ephesians 4, 26 say? Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So even when there's someone in your home or someone in your work and environment and someone maybe even in your ecclesiastical environment where you feel that they're not doing what you want them to do and you can enforce yourself on them with a little passion, a little anger, and a little to get them to do what you want to do and they're still not going to do it, then what do you do? Don't use anger. You don't have to do that. Don't be impatient. Okay. God's got this. So even though we're a people of great and varied practical financial, digital, educational resources. There's just sometimes the Lord has the only way out. 
And it's always better to wait for God's timing than to be impatient. Let's just make sure that we go together with other people and not go it alone. Maybe even with a person with a gift of faith as we work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling. Okay? I have written down here in the cross-reference as well, Matthew chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. The Bible says the worry of fools is never an approach to a problem. Set the anxiety aside, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be even anxious for one thing, but, right, everything with prayer and thanksgiving, let your supplications be made out of the Lord, and there the peace of Christ garrisons your heart. Right? So the temptation to cave in affliction is natural, but we allow God's supernatural resources to assist us and compel us to perseverance. Verse 10, verse 10. Do not say, why is it that former days were better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. People of means apparently have the tendency to say, boy, if we could just go back to the good old days, right? If you just really understood what it was like when I grew up, son, it was so much more peaceful. It was so much better. And wow, this, 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 and this. My sweet father always used to say this, and I knew his heart. My dad often talked about one day in his home creating an old-fashioned soda shop in a room in his home where he could go and get an old-fashioned chocolate malt and a five-cent cheeseburger. Apparently, that would be cool for him because as he reminisced back in the good old days, that's the place where he could find complete and total solace for his heart out of all of his agonies. I was like, well, Dad, please build it. I'll join you, right? <laughs> it never happened. Maybe the Lord will give him one in the kingdom. You can find Pastor Potter at the corner malt shop having a cheeseburger and a chocolate malt with just the right amount of powder in it Boy, was he a connoisseur of chocolate malts. I took, him, I took him to one in downtown Painesville. I found a place that had chocolate malts. I didn't even know what that was. I don't know if you put this powder in this milkshake and screw it up like that, but he loved that stuff, right? <laughs> he totally loved that stuff. I found one downtown. I even had like, a, like an old soda bar, right, where you can go up and sit on the seat and they'd make you a chocolate malt. And I was so jazzed as a, as a, as a son. I brought the millennial kingdom to his context, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he drank it. So, oh, it's, thank you for bringing me here, bringing me here. We got, on the, I got out in the concourse. He goes, I'm going to have to, on the sidewalk. He goes, I'm going to have to come back and tell these people, they really don't put the right amount of powder in that mall. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> Love you, Dad. Love you too, son. No. And what was his point? He goes, I want you to be able to taste what a real chocolate malt is. And I didn't get you the experience today, but we'll find one, right? We'll find one. <laughs> Anyways, beautiful things. If we truly examine the former days with the current days, they're really not all that much better, are they? I mean, if you rewind the videotape of your mind and you consider the conflict in your neighborhood, the conflict in your home, the conflict in our country, the conflict in your church, there really is nothing new under the sun. They just have different names, different voices, different situations, right? Right? But what does wealth do? 
wealth believes it can create an alter reality. And oftentimes we do. And even if we could make the soda shop in our basement and we could recluse ourselves there and find peace for a moment, it's not contextualized peace for a lifestyle, is it? For a lifetime. That's all he's saying here. Be careful not to alter your state of reality and really believe that you can do it for the long haul. I mean, why do I go to Disney World? Because for at least 48 hours, I can believe that my dreams are gonna come true. (laughs) Right? If I wish upon a star, right? And I can watch Tinkerbell fly across, Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell fly across the sky and drop pixie dust And if I make my wish, you know what? Maybe for that day it'll come true. It never has, but I could believe it does, right? But I walk out of there, I know I'm going back until I can't take the magic kingdom with me, right? And that's really what he's saying. Man will do everything they can to to actually believe they can create for themselves an altered state of reality that they can't. So just be careful. Just be careful, okay? Verses 11 and 12, we're gonna get to next week so I can let you go home. Teaches that wealth is always better when actively coupled with wisdom throughout any particular day. And we'll look at that beginning next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for these simple truths that we learn to help us as, as people that have been given so much to keep us undistracted from our eternal purpose as we try to live life on purpose. As we look forward to tonight, Lord, uh, just give us a wonderful time of sweet fellowship and togetherness as a church family as we gather back here at five o'clock. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. Hey, thanks for coming today. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 416. It's a small world after all. Sorry, never done that, but couldn't resist. Or 416 in our red hymnals, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. Let's stand together and sing. We'll sing verses 1 and verses 4, and you pray that I have a job after today.